0: The Front Burner with Jimmy and Andrew is proudly sponsored by Restaurant Owner App. Restaurant Owner App is a free app designed by a restaurateur for restaurateurs. Visit restaurantownerapp.com for more.
1: I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
2: Mr. Cutlets, Mr. Cutlets, when you swing around that pork chop I get a whiff of heaven every time you pass my doorstep. With the chicken and the brisket and the marrow and the giblets Mr. Cutlets spend some time with me
3: I know it's crazy, but it's true It's
0: not worth eating if it lacks a
4: Mr. Cutlets, Mr. Cutlets, when you you burst into the kitchen, you grab a plate of meatballs and a bone for wishing. All right, now, that's the uh, tail end of my theme song, and I'm Josh Ozersky, a.k.a. Mr. Cutlets, and we're here at Roberta's on the Heritage Radio Network with the Mr. Cutlets Show. Uh, No,
5: you have not turned into the wrong show, and you have not stumbled into a time warp, Uh, This is The Front Burner with Jimmy and Andrew, and this is the first show of our second season. It also, however, takes place uh, just before uh, the anniversary of a profoundly sad event that happened in the chef community and writer community last year uh, when we lost the great Josh Ozersky, who died suddenly on May 4th, 2015, while in Chicago uh, for the James Beard Awards. And we're going to devote this entire show to remembering Josh and his work and his place not just in the community of writers, but also in the world of professional chefs. And before we go any further, we should probably introduce ourselves. I'm Andrew Friedman from Tokeland.com.
3: I'm Jimmy Bradley from The Red Cat.
5: And we've assembled a small group of Josh's friends and colleagues here to remember him. Uh, Writer Stephanie Cohen, a good friend of Josh, and sometimes co-host of The Mr. Cutlet Show, which Josh hosted right here at Heritage back in 2009-2010. Welcome, Stephanie.
6: Thank you. Thanks for doing this.
5: Oh, uh, it's our... Honor and obligation. Um, Daniel Maurer, who worked with Josh on New York Magazine's Grub Street blog in its formative days. Daniel, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Uh, Jack Inslee, executive producer of Heritage Network, who produced and engineered the Mr. Cutlet Show. Nice to be here. Thanks for doing this, guys. Um, and in a little while, we'll be joined by Chef Harold Moore and writer and photographer Nick Solaris. Uh, and we also have on the phone, and he'll be here with us for the show. Uh, Johnny Spingola, a.k.a. Johnny Spin, a filmmaker and formerly the proprietor of the Boxcar Lounge, one of Josh's absolute favorite watering holes, and the place uh, where many of us saw him for the last time before he and his wife, Denite Lidor, moved to Portland on Thanksgiving Day 2014. Hi, Johnny. Hey, how you doing, guys? We're good, thank you. And we also have an interview with Josh's wife, Dineet, which we will share at one point. So welcome, everybody. Um, you know, Jimmy and I were wrestling with this... Um, and whatever assumptions we should make and not make about the listeners of this show, we're going to assume that people listening to this show know who Josh was and know his work. Uh, if not, you know, if you're not listening to this live, pause the podcast, get to Google. You can find tons of his writing. Uh, uh, Savore, Esquire, Medium, Time Magazine, his old Grub Street pieces are still there. Um, uh, just on and on and on. And there's a wonderful piece um, uh, that just came out this week. It's available online, sort of a primer on Josh, uh, you might say, called "American Mouth" uh, in Portland Monthly, written by Nigel Duara. Uh It's a really good piece that I think sums up his career really well. Um, so I guess we'll jump in, uh, Stephanie. And I guess one of our thoughts with, um, you know, with this show is again for people who were aware of Josh and you know he just died just about a year ago. Um, you know, he, he, this was obviously a larger-than-life guy. Um, uh, very well known, uh, especially as food writers go. Uh, known as much as a personality, probably, as a writer. Um, but, I, I, you know, what I'd love for us to do today is maybe give a little bit of a sense of, you know, the person behind that persona and behind that writing that maybe people would be surprised by. Um, maybe wouldn't assume or would go against their expectations. So if I just put it out there that broadly, what are what are some of the first things that come to mind for you?
6: Well... <laughs> It's hard to believe, but food wasn't even his main subject. I mean, if you sat with—that was not a part of our relationship in a lot of ways. I mean, he loved to cook very much and cooked for me, and we talked about it a lot. But he had studied um, American history uh, at—where did he go? Notre Dame. And he was a cultural historian, really. So there were many, many, many topics that he knew— as much about as he knew about hamburgers. I mean, he, he was smart. I don't know exactly how he ended up becoming a food writer. Because I, I think he wanted to be a historian. And he could have been easily. And maybe he would have gone on to do more of that. But right. there were so many subjects that he exhausted and learned in a scholarly way. Not in a, you know, I'm going to look it up on the internet for 12 hours because I'm stoned and just right. found out about it. Like he studied. I mean, I made a list just quickly. This It was so diverse. Watches. We all know his Rolex obsession. Yeah. *Shogun*, the book he read like four times. He knew everything about James Clavell. He was completely obsessed with it. *Archie Bunker*. He wrote a whole book on *Archie Bunker*.
5: Well, *Archie Bunker's America*, right? A lot of people don't know that was actually that, the first book that Josh wrote.
6: Yeah, yeah. and TV in, in that era, the golden—you know—the beginning of the golden era of t- television. Um, <laughs> ants, fashion—he got really into at one point. Um, Knives, of course, he's written a lot about that musicals, but a very specific era of musicals, because his father, you know, was this, this he, I think he got a lot of that from his dad, um, Jim Steinman. I mean, a lot of it, you were like, shut up. I don't want to hear about Steinman anymore. Right. <laughs> but, um, and he could recite huge swaths of Shakespeare, and Dylan Thomas, and Elliot. I mean, he was a very, very, very learned man who made a living as a food writer, but that could not contain his enormous brain.
5: Yeah, I mean, it's funny, you know, you go... I mean, I've been reading a ton this week, getting ready to do the show, and um, just the density of references, and and very casually and very funny, it's really stunning. You don't tend to see it much. You know, I forget when he died, I think maybe it was Tom Genot said, um, you know, he was a great food writer because he was first and foremost a great writer, you know? And a
6: great thinker. He was a really original thinker. And those references were... Yeah, he pulled from so many places, and that is partly partly what made him a great writer. He just had a great voice, too, and a, that style yeah. was amazing. But it was it was those references that he could pull from pop culture, high, low, you know, American history. Yeah. It, was, it was just so vast that yeah. it was so enriching. History. And it was
5: also, maybe Daniel, this is a good time to bring you in, but, you know, when he... You know, you apply that overlay to sort of the New York restaurants that you guys were together in the early days of Grub Street, which I think started in 06? 2006. Yeah. And, um, you know, this sort of... Um the way he saw, you know, I, I've said to people, when we lost Josh, we kind of lost th- the world as Josh saw it. You know, there was, you know, the, he had these nicknames for all the chefs around New York that developed over, you know, Eric Prepare was the Ripper. And, you know, uh, Nick Solaris, who's going to be on, who's not a chef, but was English Nick. And, and uh, you know, everyone, it was almost, um, and other people have brought made the Domin- Damon Runyon Comparison, But, you know, I said to him once, like, this New York that you've created covering the restaurant scene reminds me a little bit of Damon Runyon. Like, it's this, you've created this whole world. And a lot of it, though, is created gradually in these small... Posts that would happen on Grubbs. I'm just wondering if you could talk to this aspect of it a little bit.
7: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember him referring to the Beard Awards as the Uncle Fester <laughs> Awards, you know, <laughs> just because of James <laughs> James Beard look. But um, and every time I've seen it since there, that since then, that's what I that's what I remember. Um, and just all those. He taught me so many expressions just sharing this tiny room with him uh, in the New York Magazine offices. Um, you know. Uh, anytime he had a secret or some sort of intel He'd say, listen, do, just between me and you And the Staten Island Ferry right. And uh, that's something I'd never heard before And just, you know uh, I, I want to use that expression every day A lot of uh, Yiddishism, Yiddishisms That, um, you know uh, Words like alter cocker Yeah, uh, yeah <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of, of others But, uh, you know he was just full of catchphrases, really. Yeah,
5: I mean, it's funny. Three of us in the room here are writers, you know, and I think it's it's funny that you know very often when you, as a writer you'll meet somebody and you'll realize that they have this expectation of who you might be based on your writing, and usually you're not exactly that person you know and usually they're disappointed in some way and the amazing thing to me about josh was i felt like he was in life as he was on the page or on the screen or whatever you want to Absolutely. call it and and actually david maybe this is a good moment for because i was amazed that he could speak extemporaneously almost the way he wrote with a lot of these things that you two are talking about um dave this let's we're going to play a clip from the old mr cutlet show david could you play clip number two because i think it's a good example of this
4: what this suggests to me, maybe not. I don't what know. this suggests I don't to know. me, guys, is Marshall McLuhan's distinction between hot and cool media. Stephanie, are you are you familiar with? with Could you that?
6: explain Marshall McLuhan's distinction?
4: Well, it was t- entirely not true, of course, like many of the things that McLuhan said. But it was a like many of his you know kind of more gnomic utterances, <laughs> provocative. He said that hot media was ones that there wasn't enough information, like radio, so you had to fill it in. And that got you worked up, and then cool media that really gave you a ton of information, like television, put you in a sort of like a passive, receptive state. Okay. Now, I don't know if this is true, but uh, a food like Kim is talking about, where you know you're bringing so much. It's like when you go to the art gallery, and there's a cube of burnished steel on the ground, and it's totally empty and inert aesthetically as an object, but then there's like this like 4,000 word thing that says, about like, you know, this makes you rethink your attitudes, what makes us question our Mm -hmm. attitudes towards time and space or whatever. Yeah, I mean,
5: that's just to me, I don't remember what food they were talking about there, but that was a basically a food show. I mean, and they were there was some dish or something. But I mean, who else talks that way extemporaneously? You know, when they they were probably Kim Severson was on. So it was probably the, the whole West Coast, East Coast dialogue that went on in that episode. Um, you know, so they were probably talking about, you know, figs or salads or something or simplicity. It's pretty astonishing. But I do. Did you guys experience him that way? I feel like he really was kind of pretty much exactly who you would have expected him to be having read him.
7: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And as a coworker, there were no secrets. Um, you know, he would talk about his personal life in the office. Um, and it was just so, you know, I just felt so lucky to be in an enclosed space with him, and I would literally sometimes just, as another coworker of us uh, of ours did, she would she would she started at a certain point just keeping a list of everything you know Josh said. Joshisms. Um, Joshisms. Yeah, uh, and I would literally be doing the same thing. So sometimes I just open an email and start transcribing what he was saying and and uh, send it to a friend because it was so funny. <laughs> you know? um, but. I think my favorite thing about sharing an office with him was just the times that he would crack up at what he was writing, you know, just like literally just hysterically laughing. (laughs) Right. And then I'd see the post go up, you know, an hour from them uh, an hour from then and see what he was laughing at and it was just something just brilliant and hilarious. Right. Um,
6: I think that one thing I I I talk about this with Duned a lot too. I think in some ways though he had it was a persona um, of This Woody Allen, you know, sort of sad, neurotic guy, which was true. There was a lot of that, for sure. And he was, you know, it was funny, and it was great. And he was that way, and he was so open. But there was also a whole other side to him that was just cool as shit, and really knew he was the smartest guy in the room, in most rooms. And he let himself be the joke. And he, you know, used it in, in a funny way, and made a living with that character. But it was a character, and 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 I talk about this a lot, too, that maybe that was ending a little bit because he wasn't a sad sack anymore. You know, he wasn't the chipped cast iron pan that he writes about or the, you know, watch that he abused or the knife that he wasn't worthy of or whatever. That was sort of ending in some respects because he met Denis and in some respects because he was coming into himself. And, you know, it's I I think he might have moved into a whole different phase of writing from. The, the the person that he had become, which was, and he always was that guy. But he he that 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 persona, I think he was shedding a little bit. I think he would have continued to shed it more. And you know, the guy that I knew was the f- smartest, yeah, funniest, and really cool. Well, it's the funny you mentioned guy I knew.
5: It's funny you mentioned Woody Allen because I've seen Woody Allen interviews where he says that whole bit that everyone assumes is Woody Allen isn't actually Woody Allen. That he, it can't he's be. actually a pretty good basketball player. You know, like these things that you almost like can't okay. You know, like, it, okay. But it is so convincing. It was so utterly convincing. And so well, that
6: part was there. And you know, yeah. I know that was from his childhood, sure. a lot of that, but he was outgrowing it. And yes. also deep down, he liked being, he, he was okay with being the joke and he was okay with you guys thinking, or not you guys, but people thinking, yeah. Oh, I feel sorry for him. Oh, he's pathetic. Oh, he's funny. Oh, he's a sad sack. Cause he wasn't at right. all. He couldn't right. have been that persona if he were that yeah. guy really. Um, Johnny, I'd
5: love to hear from you a little bit. I mean, you could whatever we've just talked about that you want to comment on because you know Josh, yeah. you knew Josh a long time. But you know, either either the sort of intellect and the and the, the fascinations that Stephanie mentioned, which I know you were very familiar with from spending time with him, or also, you know, I did, I somehow never knew this until you and I were talking last night. But I didn't realize there had been a pilot that you shot uh, for a Mister Cutlets television show, yeah. and every and just so everyone knows, you can go on YouTube and search for the Mr. Cutlet show, and it's there, and that the theme song from that show actually was the theme song to that television yeah. show. Don um,
2: but- Ralph of Life in a Blender wrote that for Josh. Yeah. He was one of Josh's great friends.
5: Yeah. But uh, just what are your thoughts as you hear this commentary, however you want to come. Well,
2: at it? well uh, earlier someone said how he got into food writing. He, uh, he um, first came to the East Village in 2001, and he used to come to Boxcar. And he would bring these flyers that he would write, and this is pre, you know, before the internet blew up. And he called himself the Boob, <laughs> and it was like social commentary. And, and he would go to bars and restaurants and put these, like, uh, you know, 50 copies a piece. You know, I think he named the Boob. The character came from uh, the Yellow Submarine, the Beatles. Okay. And and uh, he was writing a social commentary and stuff about media and all that and you know I mean it's clear he was very smart but it just wasn't really going anywhere and he used to come into Boxcar, and he was he had started dating after his first divorce or after his only divorce anyway um, he was always talking about food like he would be with oh so you're from Chicago what about those uh, Italian roast beef sandwiches and he would always be talking about meat and food and me and someone else were sitting there and be like Josh why don't you write about food you know, that's what you talk about more than anything is meat. You know, and there was this guy there who uh, did a lot of the graphics for Morgan Spurlock's company named Joe the Artist, Gillette. And he used to draw on uh, coasters these cartoons of Josh eating meat. And they're very, very funny. And uh, Josh loved them. And uh, we, you know, he collected them. And uh, it was very funny. Yeah. But but uh, we shot this... Uh, we. Once he started getting in the food, he wrote that book. Meet me in Manhattan.
5: Yeah, which he and, wrote under the name Mister Cutlets, which yes, is sort yeah, of fascinating. And he created
2: this character in the book this like almost fictional character. Anyway, we I we I, I thought he was a natural character, and which he was. And I said, why don't we try to do a TV show? You know, shoot a pilot, and we scraped our pennies together, and basically for no budget, we shot a, a pilot. And we went up to Harlem uh, for uh, Charles of Charles Southern Kitchen fame for his fried chicken, which was fascinating. And Josh, you know, Josh had great rapport. And we went to uh, uh smoke shop in the East Village, which no longer exists, sad to say. And um, we went down to the San Gennaro Festival where he was going around testing the sausage and all that stuff. And... uh interviewing the characters. It was the first time he'd ever been on camera. Yeah. And I basically said, just be yourself. And, and you know, and uh, he just, he you know, he didn't write anything down. He just did it right off the top of his head. Yeah. And yeah, at The first quick, he was a little stilted, but, I mean, you know, but uh, as he started doing his segments uh, on Ozersky TV and that, I mean, he was fantastic.
5: Yeah, it's know? really and, funny. There, are, There are these little... Like breadcrumbs through the, I guess the early aughts. Or it's almost like an origin story. Um, it's almost like him becoming. Jo- I mean, to me, it's funny. Like the whole Mister Cutlets thing. It was almost like him kind of realizing that he could just be Josh Ozersky. You know, like yes. that he had this other personality. It was so interesting to me, which isn't really that different from, you know, the Josh that everybody sort of came to know. Um, Jack, I'd love to talk to you for a minute, and then we're going to go to the interview uh, with Denise. But can you, you know, the show. You know Josh Was on such a roll Sort of Toward the end But I think people forget That there was You know A bit of an ebb and flow To his career um, In fact David Before we do this Can we just play This is another moment From the show um, uh, It's uh, from episode 10 Of the Mr. Cutlet Show David can you play Clip number 4
4: please
6: Josh I feel like I haven't Seen you in a in ages well, I don't I don't know Are you busy What are you doing What are you, What's going on with you
4: Well people have been Asking me that It's uh you know, I I disappeared from the scene. I I left City search and then like a lot of people have sent me the worried emails, and they I the I think that the narrative for a lot of people they think oh well like now I've descend first I descended from my having uh, absolute hegemony over the online food you know media at New York to then being like a an increasingly marginal figure at city search to now having been silenced entirely, but
6: what were the emails? Like, I mean, fear, fear. Nala, for their lives. How are
4: you? Are you okay? Can I help you? You know, like, you know what they don't realize is that like as Obi-Wan Kenobi told Darth Vader, he mm. said, if you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. Darth. <laughs> and that, that, that
5: became true. I mean, that, that sentence was uttered in oh nine or maybe early 2010, and then, you know, all these jobs that I was listening to at the beginning of the show, yeah. and some pieces that have become legendary. We're going to read uh, Solitary Man at the end of the show, um, the great piece that he wrote for uh, Savoir. But, Chad, can you just talk about Josh's sort of, you knew him sort of in
0: that um, time frame? <laughs> what I love about that clip, Steffi. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember him kind of doing things like, Steffi you'll just ask me where I've been very obvious, and then I'll just (laughs) I'll just go on this whole rant and uh I mean he didn't come in with like outlines or plans and the the language that would come from him off the top of his head was incredible. Yeah. Like, unlike any other radio host I've worked with.
5: No, it was astonishing. Yeah, I mean, you can listen to those shows. and I mean, Jimmy and I, this is our 13th thing, I guess, that we've done. I mean, the amount of work, even to this, where you guys are just talking, the amount of planning was ridiculous. You know, it's embarrassing, because it's clear when you listen to those old shows that he just came in and, like, just did it. Yeah. And we also had the quickness to be able to just you know it's like somebody jamming you know it's like he could just go with it wherever it went
0: and like what to what you were saying before about the the person on the page being much like that in real life i mean you it's so clear by listening to the radio show for somebody to just speak like that freely and 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 off the top you know yeah it's like reading him yeah
6: and he would often make you wait while he f- picked just the right word or just the right um, analogy or illusion or whatever. Right. And, but you, you would wait because mm-hmm. y- it would be so cool what he was going to say. And it would not be what you would expect. So there'd be a long pause. <laughs> right. But it was worth waiting for. And yeah. it was like, you know, because it, it was the way he wrote. It was the same. It was all the same voice. Right.
5: Well, on that note, we're going to um, run this interview that I did with. I cannot bring myself to call her Josh's widow. It's just I can't. But Josh's wife, Denise Lador. Uh, who's in Portland, Oregon, where they moved to uh, on Thanksgiving Day uh, in 2014. Uh, David, why don't you go ahead and run the interview, and then we'll come back after the break. Okay, we're on the phone with Daneet Lador uh, from Portland, Oregon. Uh, Daneet, welcome to The Front Burner with Jimmy and Andrew. Thanks for joining us.
1: Hi, Andrew. Thank you. Thank um, you. So I just, you know, I thought, and we're
5: sort of hopefully doing this on the show as it's happening live, um, you know, trying to give people a sense maybe of, you know, the, maybe the Josh Ozerski that people didn't necessarily know um, through his writings or through, you know, the various public ways of knowing him, Twitter and so forth. Um, you know, obviously, the last six months or so of his life, you guys had moved to Portland, um... I'm just wondering if you could maybe give a sense of sort of, you know, to a lot of people that was a bit of an incongruity or a surprise that somebody who was so associated with New York um, would be in Portland. Can you give us a sense of what it was, what it was like there for you
4: guys?
1: Well, that is a complicated question. Um, as far as the move to Oregon, I think a lot of that was about, for Josh anyway, um, in his mind for most of his life the idea that everything that happened happened in New York um, was, you know, sort of paramount. Um, however, once he had started working at Esquire and was doing so much traveling and looking at different parts of the country to see where other things were happening, he began to see that it wasn't this simple black and white, you're either in New York or you're in, you know, Applebee's in the middle of wherever. Nowhere. Right. Um, so when he had been he had been to Portland quite a few times. He'd been to Um, you know, he'd been all over the country for this, for Esquire, and he saw that these were not just, it was not the one truth of New York. He started to see, oh, look at what's happening here. Look what's happening there. And Portland especially, um, in terms of what they were doing regarding meat, regarding what they were doing um, as far as creativity, what they were doing um, with not... Tons of money Which then Equals More creative power Which I think In New York Now especially Is not as easy To do um, You have to answer To investors You have so much Other stuff to do And you're In tell Portland Pardon me um, You could Start a food cart And you could Just be like I'm just making The best grilled cheese I want to make Right And that kind of thing Really appealed to Josh Because he More than anything Loved authenticity And um, Portland Really Rung true To him In that sense it's so interesting we, were, de- we so, were deciding to leave New York, which was also largely I have to be honest uh, about money. I mean New York became really expensive. Um, Portland just just was the right place for us.
5: yeah, I mean, it's interesting that when you talk you know it's funny getting ready to do this show, I'd gone back and listened to most of the old Mr. Cutlet shows, and um, you know, when you talk about the way he responded to the food there, it seems I could see him responding to it that way on multiple levels, you know, both from uh, as someone who covers it. Uh, but also as somebody, you know, obviously was a passionate cook himself. I think um, that sort of elemental style of cooking that you're describing is something that I think was kind of very, something that he very much would relate to as a cook um, and not just as a, as a writer.
1: Absolutely. He 100% um, agreed. And, you know, Josh was so famous for his, you know, anti-vegetable stance. But um, in Portland and, you know, the, the West Coast in general, there's so much of this fresh, local produce stuff and he surprisingly was kind of blown away by that and was like oh I had no idea that this kind of you know that there were so many different flavors to you know to different things that that was I think would have been surprising to a lot of his readers um, and was actually you know Surprising to himself,
5: I think, as well. Yeah, there was. Um, you know, I was thinking about this show, and there was this, and thinking about Josh, and there was a line. Uh, Fitzgerald, uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald, had this great line. That was something to the. I'm paraphrasing, but that there was. There had never been a good biography of a writer because a good writer is too many people if he's any good. Um, and you know, that kind of reminded me of Josh a little bit. And I'm just wondering, um, you know, what. What do you think? You know, as, as you know, for someone who was so public and who was such an open book in a lot of ways, what do you think there was maybe about Josh that sort of, you know, the casual observer, someone who only knew him, um, you know, through his writing, who didn't really know the person? What do you think was maybe the biggest misconception about him, or the or the or the biggest thing about him, maybe that people just had no idea about? What do you think would surprise people about
1: Josh? Wow. Uh, well, I like the Fitzgerald quote because I think that's very. Um Kithy, I don't know, Uh, he was like a million different things and he was more than many people. He was so many different kinds of people and meant a lot to different people about lots of... I mean, he was in correspondence with this um, evolutionary biologist, for example, um, whose name is escaping me, but, you know, he was hugely invested in evolutionary biology for some reason. He loved ants and he loved bees. Um, He loved talking about queer theory. I mean, there was so many other things about Josh besides food, and it was really his just his intellect. His brain was just so on fire all the time. He just loved knowing and learning and talking, thinking, um, and uh, he was. He also said, you know, it was just a wonderful thing that food ended up being the thing that was best able to express himself. But in all of those things that he writes, if it's about hash browns or if it's about Philip K. Dick and his uh, Adderall use, right. Get the sense of this brain working, working, working. Um, So, as far as I think, one of the things that misconceptions about Josh would be a um, hmm, that he was always kind of uh, deliberately being um, contrary or aggressive. And uh, the thing about that that's sort of ironic was that Josh was always kind of somebody who wanted to be you know, accepted in one of the group, but at the same time he was not like everybody else. So he was kind of trying to be this um accepted into a group but also insisting on being himself. And so that became kind of a I think um art, uh, or, weird thing to kind of figure out with
5: him do you think he didn't know is when you're describing it it almost sounds like you sort of maybe he didn't you know when people use that expression you know they didn't know their own strength like was he surprised sometimes when he would just you know offer an opinion or put something out there and you know the kind of moment that you're describing would happen? was he surprised that people could get so bent out of shape about an opinion. That's what it always seemed like to me. That it, 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 it that's just so true. Yes. it just it's seemed totally like, well, true. it's just an opinion. But well, why, you know? And I, I always admired his how forthright he was. You know, Mark Vetri wrote a piece. Uh, it was after you guys had moved, and I had talked to Josh about it, and a lot of people. It was about food media, and a lot of journalists were very offended by it, and, you know, it caused this huge Twitter explosion. And I had spoken to Josh, uh, and he hadn't read it yet, and he, then he read it, and like an hour later, he was up on Twitter saying, in my opinion, Mark Vetrie is right, and that's why everyone's circling the wagons, you know? And I really admired that he would just put it out there like that without hesitation. I mean, you know, and why not?
1: Well, that was the great thing about Josh. He was so fearless, even though at the same time he really wanted people to like him. But he didn't, it didn't matter because to him he thought if someone doesn't have an opinion and they're just, everybody's just parroting everybody else, which uh, I think we can all see is. Kind of true uh, in food media. There's a lot of sort of just everyone's lining up and repeating each other. Um, it's, it's it's brave to take a stand, and when someone takes a stand and says, "Okay, this is what I think is good, and this is what I think is bad," then that gives other people an opportunity. You know, I.e., look at all the crazy flaming you know comments he used to get of you know absolute hatred or absolute adoration of. It gives you something to bounce off of. I mean, someone needs to be the one who says, no, this is bad, this is good, and then other people can say, well, I think you're insane, or yes, I totally agree with you. But the thing about him was that even if what he was saying you didn't agree with, all he really wanted, he was welcoming people to say to him, I don't agree with you and this is why. But as long as you had a well-thought answer and you had thought about why you didn't agree with him, he welcomed that. That right. was all he wanted. Like, meet me here, tell me why. Okay, yeah, all right, you're right. Or, no, I still think I'm just, I agree with what I said, but I see your point. I mean, yeah. that's really what he was trying to get with a conversation. And that can only happen if somebody has an opinion to start from. Great.
5: Right. Um, I did want to ask you. It's something over the year, last, you know, year um, that I've, I know I've, I've mentioned. I just wonder if anything's going on. You know, so much of his stuff because he was very prolific, and because of the age that we're you know, all living and working in, um, you know, a lot of his material and a lot of his best pieces appeared in, in different places um, uh, and in a lot of online places. Um, is there any effort or uh, anything underway in terms of maybe getting together some kind of a, like a an Ozersky reader or something where these things maybe would be found in one place eventually?
1: Uh, that is exactly right. There's been a lot of interest. I mean, Joshua was not only just a great writer and a great observer and um, uh, somebody who had a lot to say and think, but also he was just uh, in and of himself a very interesting person with an interesting story. And I think that if you read a lot of his things, you can see that. But as you said, they're all very um, sort of far flung. And uh, yes, yeah, so there is a there's a lot of interest. People are asking lots of questions, and so there is a there are two books actually in the works. Um, that will sort of bring together, I think, the best of Josh Azersky and his essays—the stuff that he had thought himself was uh, best expressed, who he was. Great. Well,
5: that's great to hear. Um, well, Denise, thank you for joining us. I know it's a, probably, I'm sure, an emotional week that you're in the midst of right now, um, coming up on the anniversary. We really appreciate it, and it was great to have you be a part of the show.
1: Thank you so much, Andrew. It's really important to me that we all remember him.
5: Great. Same here. Okay. Uh, this was Denise Lador talking to us from Portland, Oregon, and uh, we'll be right back with more of The Front Burner with Jimmy and Andrew.
0: The Front Burner with Jimmy and Andrew is proudly sponsored by Restaurant Owner App. Restaurant Owner App is a free app designed by a restaurateur for restaurateurs. Restaurant Owner App empowers you to organize your restaurant from the palm of your hand on any iPhone or Android device. Place orders, track orders, and customize supply lists to track the organization of your kitchen or storeroom. Accomplish electronically what you've been doing by hand for years. Restaurant Owner App also allows you to see orders placed by your employees, so you're always in the know. Create a personalized vendor database and review past orders at any time. It also features promotions and specials on goods and services for the hospitality trade. Visit restaurantownerapp.com for more information. Or to download for free and start organizing your restaurant today, search for Restaurant Owner App in the Apple App Store or in Google Play for Android phones. And welcome back.
5: Welcome back to the front burner with Jimmy and Andrew. Uh, we are today remembering the great Josh Ozersky, who died uh, about a, just about a year ago. Um, and in studio with us are writer Stephanie Cohen, and on the phone is Johnny Spignola, aka Johnny Spin. And uh, here in the studio, to, we're going to move the conversation a little bit uh, over to um, the unique place that. Um, i think josh had in the in the world of chefs for a writer uh we have nick solaris writer and photographer from eater.com and we have chef harold moore who formerly of commerce restaurant uh both good friends of josh and uh i guess harold maybe let's just start with you you know it, it seemed to me like more than any writer i know um Uh, I feel, I mean, I almost feel like you have to go back to somebody like Coleman Andrews, you know, who was covering the scene in L.A. back in the 70s and and 80s to find a a writer who had this sort of, you know, really, there was almost no separation between him and chefs, it seemed to me. Like, he really related to chefs and they to him uh, in a way that was very unusual, and I'm just wondering if you could speak to that and, and, uh, and to why you think it was that he was able to have that kind of relationship with so many uh, chefs.
8: I think more than the other writers is he had real opinions and agendas where everybody else kind of comments on what you do. Josh would come into your kitchen and be like, you know, I really wish that you were using, you know, dry egg, something really fatty, something, you know, and like a real opinion about, what he thought was good and then he would get you into this spot of like you're defending your your choices for stuff and he would just tell you like dude that sucks like, you should uh uh-huh. and and really <laughs> did you appreciate that that he would do that It was a little like whoa and at first and i was like no nah, josh you're crazy not everybody wants to eat x you know like right i served him a salad one time and he was just like I said, send me a couple of things. I didn't know you were going to try and poison me. You know, like, so, <laughs> you, know, you know, he he just had a way and he was super likable. And, you know, there was this, you're always buying Josh drinks and food and stuff when you when you have a restaurant. Like, that was part of the deal. But it didn't, it wasn't like, all right, Ozersky is buyable. Like, if right. he didn't. If he he would take your drinks and stuff and, and eat your food, but if he didn't like it, it was still on the page, right? So I I felt like That's people true. sort of appreciated that that there was a, a real intellectual honesty about the way he did it. Yeah, but he he was essentially like a he has this or had this way of making everybody believe that you are his best friend, like you're his best friend, you're his best friend. Every everybody he just was able to pull everyone in in that yeah. way. But then, you know, there's other people who are like, I fucking hate Ozersky. Sure. So, yeah. But I, I found him to be just an in, incredibly enjoyable and, you know, fun guy. Do you think part of it, and then we'll come over to Nick in a
5: second, but, you know, I always thought that maybe part of it was, um, you know, the fact that he was such a big personality. Um, you know, kitchens are filled with big personalities. You know, I think I've always thought that's one of the, you know, this sort of uncensored thing you're talking about, I think it's something that cooks relate to in a way
8: i think yeah josh is like a regular guy yeah a lot of writers hold themselves apart and like really are are more intellectual than outgoing a lot of times and josh could you know wax poetic about the strength of a french fry and really relate to all levels of people and it was just a you know a good guy from Jersey, in yeah. a way, you know?
5: Yeah. Nick, you observed a lot of this uh, very closely. You spent a lot of time with him being, you know, out in the city and in restaurants and, and dealing with chefs. What, do you, what, do you, what, do you, what are your observations about this, or just your thoughts on this?
9: Well, just that there was, there was really no... There was no barrier for him between the kitchen and the dining room. Yeah. And he would just walk into a kitchen and graze, right? There would be food coming off the pass, and he would just reach in and take a French fry and, you know, I'm not going to eat, but maybe you could make me that ravioli dish that's so good that I wrote about. Um, But it was very much that he was – in. it was as if he was involved in the process of creating the zeitgeist rather than reporting on the zeitgeist. That's interesting. So, And that's very much what Harold alluded to earlier, that he was involved in the food trends – In an internal way. Like, he helped create them, he helped craft them, he was an advocate for things, and, you know, I know that he gets saddled a lot with the loudcore core thing and the bacon explosion, but... He actually didn't really, I don't think, really like that because that was a sort of most coarse and obvious expression of what he loved. Yeah. And there was a much more soulful aspect to what he was involved in. Yeah, And I think that th- that his contribution actually was imbuing food trends with something of more substance than just salt and fat, right? right? And I think that that's actually what chefs really respected and responded to was that he understood the underpinnings of the food that people found delicious. Yeah. And he, he found things that were delicious in a cultural sense and a subcultural sense, and I think that's actually the, the real sort of unspoken connection.
5: Yeah, I mean, it's it's um, well, first of all, let's just uh, David, can we play this last clip we have because I think it speaks to a little bit of both about how Josh was able to relate to and speak to chefs and also some of the stuff that Nick is saying. Can we play um, clip number three, which is from uh, an old Mr. Cutledge show fe- featuring Chef Marco
4: Canora? I think that what we're getting at here, Dineet, is the the simplicity and its discontents to paraphrase freud the the fact is that what we call simplicity is often not so simple exactly i think that what what you you are a true cook's cook and even though you're not like italian in the sense of being like off the boat off, speak it right you have that kind of an approach and, I, and it's exemplified i think especially illustriously here at Roberta's and, and the kind of simple foods that they make. You know, there's a certain sign of insouciance, a kind of an effortlessness, an unconscious kind of like Taoist bliss in the way that those kind of cooks, when they're in, their, when they're in gear, as it were, can throw together three or four things that seem almost like prearranged in the universe. I mean, the great thing to me about that clip is you hear Marco,
5: you know, at every point going, yep, 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 you, you know, yep, and that, and it goes on, and it goes on, and they have this whole talk about what Marco did that was deceptively complicated, and what other people would maybe do that was actually simple, but not very good, um, and, you know, you can just feel the... Um, uh, the understanding that seemed to exist between Josh and and Marco about the craft of cooking. You know, Josh is, we're going to read Solitary Man in a minute. You know, Josh did work a a grill back in Atlantic City at one point in his life. He cooked a lot, a lot at home. He would have people in this room where we are now, um, you know, and talk about cooking at length. Um, You know, I often joke the one time I ate at the Brindle Room, he was actually telling, you know, the chef how to make, Uh, our second round of burgers and like flatten them out more uh, than the first but it was Jimmy I mean get in here what did you 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 were telling me before you had spent some time with Josh socially over the years
3: yeah I mean the first couple times we were just hanging out with other people groups of friends and so on and I guess uh, one time we we got to spend some time alone together and just hanging out and you know, through through speaking with him, it's like my God, this man is wickedly smart and just you know his his his, his he, he's just infectious. Hanging out and speaking with him and listening to him, and like, I I when I was listening, I was like, oh my God, this is this man's like the the Christopher Hitchens of the food writing world, yeah. you know, just yeah. like powerful conviction and deep and soulful and just 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 like charming and you know uh able to consume vast and and you know copious quantities of whatever was put in front of him uh it was uh really you know i just i can't, I can't say enough I, I was in the camp of you know i i i just adore the guy i mean i that man wrote beautiful sentences and just 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 listening to him and you know i, I just go on and on i, I I wish I got to spend more time with him.
6: Stephanie, did you want to... No, when you were saying that you were in, in the camp, you know that's called Team Cutlets.
3: Oh, yes, I was in Team Cutlets. <laughs> yeah, you were a
6: member of Team So do
3: you, know, do you know where Mr. Cutlets came from? Do you know what it means? Yeah,
6: yeah it's Melville. from Bartleby, right? Is Johnny it, Is you,
3: Johnny there?
5: Yeah. Where's it come from?
2: Melville. Melville. Oh,
5: Bartleby the Scrivener. Okay.
6: Right, Johnny? Maybe. <laughs> I don't
5: know, he can't hear me. Johnny, is it Bartleby the... Yeah, Bartleby. Yeah,
2: yeah, there's a character named Mr. Cudlitz in Bartleby.
5: Um, Well, we uh, amazingly are getting down to the end here. Nick, uh, Harold, do you have anything else you want to get in before we have to go to our reading?
8: I mean, you know, it just sucks that the the guy is not around to criticize my food or, (laughs) you know. Takes you know, harass the staff and drink the drinks and and have a good time with, but uh, you know th- there is a vacuum for that level of opinion yeah. in in food now. I, I don't see it anywhere. Like we we went on this voyage of finding the best mozzarella in New Jersey once and ate like fuck like twenty twenty different things and like I don't see that level of criticism or research in anything yeah. anymore. So,
3: that enthusiasm was yeah. amazing.
8: Well, I also,
5: I feel like, and I know there are people, and it's not why we're here today, but, you know, people who would say some of it maybe it was for shock value and all this. I don't particularly ascribe to that opinion, but you know, uh, you know, as Deneen and I were talking about in that interview, I think his honesty was, you know, as someone who does write, you know, you know time you want to stick your neck out the what you know what could happen to you just in a day on twitter um you know is just like it's like why do I need this like
9: do oh, I need I this in my think, life sorry to cut you off i don't no, even no. think that it was necessarily honesty I think it was it was vulnerability, and I think that's actually what made him a unique writer is that he was much more revealing of himself in his writing, yeah. and the fact is that a lot of times the reason he reverted to that was because he was actually more interesting than the story he was writing. Right. Right, (laughs) And a more interesting character than maybe the people he was reporting on. Yeah. But I think it was those pendulous swings between incredibly self-assured of an opinion and at the same time being very vulnerable and Denise alluded to this in the interview about wanting to be liked and he was always sort of the kid in the candy store sort of looking through that frosted window. Yeah. And... I think he always felt that way, even though he was actually inside gorging himself. He didn't realize that he was actually loved and accepted in, in a way that I don't think he ever appreciated. Yeah, and yeah. I, I still don't know if if it's appreciated. Yeah, on
5: that note, yeah. on that note, um, and especially Nick, you set it up really well, saying about you know how he was, how interesting he was, and the vulnerability. Um, Jimmy and I felt like it was really important to have some of Josh's writing on this show. Um, so we're going to end with a reading of his story, Solitary Man, which is about his father. Uh, I think it's a
2: brilliant piece.
5: It's a brilliant piece. And I, I also think you just see strains and sort of origins of all this stuff we've been talking about for the last 45 minutes. Um, we I have to this is an abrupt uh, change of tone, but I do have to say um, and acknowledge and thank deeply. We have our first ever sponsor on the front burner. It's restaurant owner app, and we're delighted to have them and welcome them aboard for the season. Um, we'd love to thank our guests today, Stephanie Cohen, Daniel Maurer, Jack Inslee, Chef Harold Moore, Nick Solaris, Johnny Spingola over the phone, uh, Denit Lador, of course, for making some time for us during what I'm sure is a, a rough week. Um, and with that, we are going to close the show uh, with, again, one of Josh's best stories, Solitary Man. Written for Savor Magazine in 2013. And uh, after that, we'll see you back here in a week on the Front Burner with Jimmy and Andrew. David Ozersky, my father, thought about food a lot. He wasn't frantic and feral about it like I was, but we shared a deep common feeling on the subject, one of our few such bonds. My father, a brilliant but melancholy man, loved to eat. But I believe he took more pleasure in talking about eating. He would talk about his last meal while still eating the current one, And soon his talk would turn to the subject of where we ought to eat next. In Atlantic City, our home during my teenage years, the options were gratifying but few. Spare ribs from a Chinese joint at the local strip mall, vast flaccid pies from a boardwalk pizzeria, some frozen rabbit meat from the ShopRite that he would roast up in the oven with honey and salt. My father never got tired of weighing each equally banal option, deliberating back and forth while never being completely sold on his decision. I didn't register any of this as odd. In fact, the contours of my unformed mind molded to a strange monomania, a shape it has kept to this day. I didn't realize at the time that my father's preoccupation with food was a form of denial, something he talked about so as to avoid talking about or thinking about other things. But even as a child, I could tell that he always seemed sad and made me love him more and feel guilty and want to try to make him happy. At times, as I grew older, I was able to do that. Often it involved bringing him little surprises, mail-order Katz's salami, a half-eaten carton of Cantonese roast duck. One of the reasons he was sad, I knew, was that he was a hugely talented painter and nobody cared. My father was a failure. He knew it, and my mother and I knew it. We didn't blame him. It was understood as the kind of cosmic misfortune that requires stoicism and big sandwiches to bear up to, but it was tragic nonetheless. My father's paintings of chefs, one of his favorite subjects, hung in our house when I was growing up. They were much happier than his other paintings, whose themes included dead gangsters, the Holocaust, and junkies. His paintings are charged with feeling, as per the ideals of abstract expressionism. I think he put so much of himself into them that beyond their formal qualities, they seem to almost seethe with his his thwarted, rueful spirit. He was completely unsparing in his painting, and I feel like it was the only place he ever really opened up. He never said anything to indicate it, because he never talked about himself, but I believe he thought of his whole life as the waste product of his art, which made it so much worse that nobody cared about it. My father's active hopes for recognition as an artist died before I was born. David Ozersky wasn't a painter as far as anyone was concerned. He was a stagehand at Resorts International Hotel Casino in Atlantic City, a job he held for the last 20 years of his life. He had contempt for the job, which he considered mindless, but it was a cushy one, a union gig that allowed him to work three hours of an eight-hour shift and spend the other five across the street at a lounge inside the Burgundy Motor Inn. He was, I will say, inspired enough by his time at work to create a series of charcoal sketches of showgirls on acid-proof cardboard. I'm going to go do my Edgar Degas routine, he would say mordantly, trudging up the stairs to the spare bedroom he uses his studio. The one subject that he kept coming back to in his paintings was food. It was a constant in our pre-Atlantic city days, back in the 1970s, when we lived in the groovy, sun decadence of South Miami. That, That was before things turned really bad. I was five or six years old, and my father spent much of his time volunteering in the kitchen of a popular Italian restaurant called Raimondo's. His real job was working in his father's hardware store, which he hated but was obliged to do because he was otherwise unemployable for reasons I never thought to wonder about. During his time with Raimondo, he created elaborate menus and worked the line. That's when he first started painting chefs. We went out to many restaurants back then, but my father cooked at home a lot as well. I remember him going through his souffle phase when he would make the fluffy desserts every night beating the eggs with a whisk furiously and then pulling them at full height from the oven with a triumphant expression my mother and i otherwise almost never got to see the painting stopped in 1978 when we moved to new jersey and he landed the job at resorts those were dismal times with my mother isolated depressed and even worse shape than my father his closed off sadness became even more airtight in 1982 ...when he came home one night to find my mother overdosed on Dilaudid, a potent prescription narcotic. I woke up. He told me to go back to sleep. I did. But when I got up in the morning, she was dead. We didn't talk about it. We talked about food. For the next few days, we talked animatedly about why some potato skins weren't crispy enough. They had too much potato still on them. And why Katz's pastrami was so great. It had to do with hand slicing. We began to eat more, too. I remember cooking steaks on our porch, wood-fired New York strips on a little hibachi, served up with buttered onion rolls. Afterward, we sat quietly in that nowhere, and then he said sheepishly, maybe we should get some ribs from the Chinese place. Why not? His mood eventually stabilized, but there remained a certain wry, morose quality to his eating. The summer I was 16, I manned the grill at Pizza Haven on the boardwalk. One day, my father wandered up after a show at resorts, dressed in black pants and a long, black sleeve shirt, his stage-tech garb, killing time before heading to the Burgundy. I made him a double cheesesteak with pizza mozzarella melted into the vinegar peppers. He ate it absentmindedly, then stood around trying to figure out what to do next. Maybe I should have a sausage sandwich, he said, in a glum, half-questioning way. I wanted to cry, but I did make him a sausage sandwich, and he did like it. His story isn't wholly a depressing one. In the early 90s, he quit drinking and took up with someone who truly understood and loved him, someone who had known him most of his life. They began to spend a lot of time in New York. He had discovered John George von Gerichten when the French chef was still at the Lafayette restaurant at the Drake Hotel. And when he opened JoJo on the Upper East Side in 1991, my father became such a loyalist that the chef would try things out on him. One Christmas, von Gerichten even presented him with a foie gras terrine, a mark of special favor. My father was astonished by the chef's conviction as an artist, and I think it reawakened something in him. Who else would have come up with white pepper ice cream, he'd asked me rhetorically over and over again. He became aware of his torpor. He felt guilty about it and was moved to start a second series of chefs, many of whom looked suspiciously like John George. When the chef's big luxe restaurant in the Trump Tower received a four-star review in the New York Times from Ruth Reichel in 1997, my father had it silkscreened onto shower curtains, which he then painted over in a Warholian manner, the only time I ever saw him depart from his figurative, emotional style. I think he was grateful that the chef had made him so happy in the only way he allowed himself to be happy, and helped him in some small way to start painting again. Nobody saw or cared about the paintings then as before, but he opened up a little in middle age and would occasionally say revealing things in his own sardonic way, like, I beat three major addictions in life, but I can't stop buying cheap shoes. He would mark, mock his own dark cast of mind, saying his motto was, let them get you down. But when he said it, I knew it was no longer completely true, and that made me feel good. David Ozersky died in 1998 at 58 from a cancer that had been diagnosed four days earlier. He never saw it coming. He thought he had a backache. He was going to chiropractor's. When I got back from the hospital, on Father's Day no less, there were still some leftover pork chops in the refrigerator from the Malaysian restaurant Penang on the Upper West Side, which it turned out has been his last meal. I finished them, of course. There was never any chance I wouldn't. That was Solitary Man by Josh Ozersky, 1967 to 2015. Rest in peace, Josh. I'm,
4: I'm, for, you, Josh. I'm, I'm very sad to say, I find this a very interesting Appetizing topic Everything's I appetizing To you hungry. right now I wish I was eating Poor But it, unfortunately
1: When do you get to eat again? Just yeah, tell me that when, when
4: is, Well I'm breaking the fast Tuesday I'm going to Minetta Tavern has the Okay so, so, so we're going to feel A, a, a yeah. Riyadh Riyad told me That he's not eating steak During my diet Wow He's not going to eat steak I till I break question. it I have a question How has, how has your diet Affected the economy Of New York's dining How much money Has not Everyone's in the red now All right listen This is the end of the show We're going about to do another one and tune in every week on the Mr. Cutlets Show. Thanks a lot.
2: <laughs> Mr. Cutlets, Mr. Cutlets, when you swing around that pork chop, I get a whiff of heaven every time you pass my doorstep. With the chicken and the brisket and the marrow and the giblets, Mr. Cutlets, spend some time with
0: me. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website,